We're in Psalm 126 tonight. I'll begin with the, um, the title because it's part of the inspired word. Hear God's holy, perfect, and encouraging word, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. Amen. Let's let's pray. Lord, isn't this the experience of your saints um, in the world? even as it mimics or mirrors your experience, Lord Jesus Christ, going from an estate of um, humiliation to exaltation, going from an estate of sorrow uh, to one of um, everlasting joy. We think of those suffering saints even tonight. We think of our brother and father in the faith, Pete Yonke. We ask Almighty God that you'd be pleased to have mercy upon him even now. And whatever your will is for his life, that he would, um, he would be reconciled to it. And if it's life, then he would rejoice to live. And if it's going to have um, never-ending perfect life, uh, these things are yours, O God. But we pray that all of us would have something of Paul's spirit, whether high or low, healthy or um, unhealthy, uh, to live or to die that everything we would know that we're super overcomers and all of it can redound to your glory. But encourage your saints, Lord. We need encouragement from your word tonight and cause each one of us that truly loves you in spirit and in truth, Jesus Christ, to know that the end of uh, our, our things, our time, it won't be one of weeping. It will be one of um, unimaginable joy and happiness. Uh, encourage your people. Amen. All right. Well, we're here in the Psalms, kind of like the Beatitudes. There are certain sections of the Bible that I'm, I'm just drawn to when I'm looking for something more experimental, something more pastoral. And so I do take regular respites from my series. I love being a series preacher, but I do like sometimes getting a little bit of a, a variety in the Psalms provide us. When you think of the book of Psalms, it's actually five books. Many of you might know this already. And so it's five books variously compiled and then joined together, obviously. Book 1 through, uh, Psalm 1 through 41 is the first book. Psalm 42 to 72 is the second book of the Psalms. 73 to 89, third. 90 to 106 is the fourth book of the Psalms. And then the fifth book is what we're looking at tonight, It's from Psalm 107 to Psalm uh, 150. This particular psalm has been named or entitled uh, variously. I see that the title is A Song of Ascents, and I'm going to talk about that just a bit. 
but it's been sometimes called a psalm of joy, a psalm of happiness or something like this, a song of sadness to joy, slavery to freedom, something like that. The underlying theme is uh, going from in a state of slavery uh, to in a state of freedom, going from in a state of sorrow to in a state of, um, of joy. And ultimately, that's what we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I will just point out, I might point it out in the body of the sermon, but you see here clearly in the psalm, as we read, um, what is the misery into which man fell? And then we looked at the Redeemer out of the misery. But the question prior in verse 18, the question 18 of the Shorter Catechism, is wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein man fell? And it talks about the, the lack of original righteousness and those kind of things, the loss of those. And so the connection is this. Sin produces sorrow or misery. And then the opposite of that is what we see here, is that salvation in Christ Jesus, holiness, produces happiness. And I will mention in the body of the sermon, this is why Jonathan Edwards, I know he gets a bad rap. People just, they don't, sometimes people don't read people. Oh, Calvin, I don't like him. Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And they don't even read, they don't even read it. So he writes, heaven, a place of consummate happiness, is one of his uh, sermons. And he says, heaven is a place of consummate happiness because it's a place of holiness. So sin produces sorrow or misery. But holiness, which is antithetical to the way that the unbeliever thinks, is actually not the source of depression or being downcast as the unbeliever thinks. It's the source of our joy. That's why the believer is so joyful. When he is freed in Christ, he has joy. So... Uh, This is a song of thanksgiving for the mercy of salvation. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, um, he writes, if you look at verses 5 and 6, he calls this, I forget which book I read this in. Um, Sometimes I wish I wrote down more about what I read, because I read more than I remember it was exactly here. But McShane calls this particular psalm, and particularly verses 5 and 6, he calls it the preacher's psalm. And he, he says, here is the work of the preacher in verse 5. Those who sow, and the idea is those who sow the gospel word, the word of God in tears, shall reap with joyful shouting. And the notion is, like any preacher, that you realize that much of what you sow, you don't see any immediate results. And remember in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. It's, um, it's the same seed, it's just different soil. And you have three soils, three individuals, who essentially don't bear any fruit. And then you have one individual that does bear fruit. And sometimes the preacher is sowing, 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 and it looks as if nothing will germinate and nothing will grow. And the reason McShane said this is the preacher's psalm is what we sow now, even if we don't see the results, in eternity we're down to the glory of Christ and it will be our glory. And I, I do want to apply that, that concept to um, us as parents. I'm a parent and a grandparent. Sometimes you sow the word of Christ, you sow the word of Christ, you sow the word of Christ into your son and your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter. And you say, where's the fruit? I don't see any fruit. And actually I see backsliding or superabundance of sin. You keep sowing. You keep sowing. You keep praying. It was J.C. Rowell. I think a couple of his children um, were not um, converted. I think one of his daughters died in an asylum. Um, but he said, maybe, maybe I won't live to see my children converted, but maybe after I'm dead, they'll be converted. 
So we, we sow and pray and sow and pray, knowing that eventually everything will redound to God's everlasting glory and our everlasting um, joy. So I wanted to look at this particular psalm really for the purpose of instilling in us as God's people more hope, more confidence, more joy. And just so you know, I'm going to use happiness and joy as synonyms. I know sometimes we make a distinction, but I check the thesaurus, I check the dictionary. I'm okay, I think, if I use... So you may I help or forgive me if you have a particular view of one or the other. I'm going to use them interchangeably. And I, I want us here to look at this particular psalm in about the happiness of being set free. And the reason I think this is so instructive for us, one, God puts it this here. This is a psalm where people are literally expressing their rejoice, their rejoicing and their joy and their happiness. And it's infectious both to the other believers, but it also woos the unbelievers. Here are these believers in their Lord, and God has taken them out of captivity and freed them, and they're singing to his praise. And it's a platform to excite the unbeliever to believe, to believe. So the reason I find this very significant is this is a call to joy or happiness. And it's an experience of people, who believers like us, who have joy and happiness in this world. In this world. Many years ago, this man is in heaven. Um, he, was, he was examining another man. And someone said something about a, a professor, a seminary professor. And it was a pejorative. It was a young person. He says, well, you know, we don't have the beauty of like, sitting in the ivory tower. And I, I knew it was a slight of this particular fellow who, who was an academic, like as if to say he's not in the real world. You're an academic, you're not in the real world. No, he's in the real world. I don't know what the academy is like. So this is a real, this is real world encouragement. So this is sometimes people say, well, when you, as a Christian, your joy or your happiness is in the sweet by and by. It's when you die and go to be with Jesus. Well, that's true. In the sweet by and by. I, I listen to such eclectic Christian music, George uh, Jones won't it be wonderful there? George Jones, the early George Jones, the possum, I recommend him. And won't it be wonderful there? And the circle shall be unbroken. Oh, and it will be. But we can have joy, what this song is telling us. We don't have to wait to the sweet by and by. We have benefits of being a believer in Jesus Christ right now. We have benefits in this life. We're justified, we're adopted, we're sanctified. We're in the process of being sanctified, progressively made holy, Assurance of God's grace, joy in the Holy Spirit, what we're looking at here, all of these things, fellowship of the saints, perseverance of the grace. So in this life, will we have sorrow and struggles and sufferings? Yeah, Jesus says it, and experimentally we experience it. But this is here for our encouragement. It's in the Bible. There are lots of things in the Bible. We should believe when God threatens or warns, that's true. But when God encourages and says, take cheer, we ought to take cheer. I'm reading a book by Octavius Winslow called Our God. He started off his career. He was English, born in England, lived most of his time in America, became a Congregationalist. Towards the end of his life, he went back to England and joined the Church of England. He has a little treatise called Our God. And in, one of, in the very final lecture that he gives on Our God, he says Our God is the God of Revelation. And what he talks about there is we have the Bible. I have unbelievers on the brain because I've spent so much time with unbelievers in the past nine days. The first thing that's often attacked in the life of a believer is the Bible. 
The devil wants to take your confidence in the Bible away. The, the devil wants to take the Bible away from you. Oh, is it all inspired? Is, is some of it, does some of it have errors? What about the other holy book? They want the Bible. And why? If I can take away the Bible, I can take away your hope. I can take away your salvation. I can take away your joy. And Octavius Winslow is much smarter than him. I, I can't even put it as smart as he puts it. He essentially says, don't you let anyone take the Bible away from you. Don't let anyone take, take the Bible away. Here, God puts in his word, take cheer. You were a slave, now you are free. You are sowing in tears. You will reap in everlasting joy. It's the Bible. We live in days, well, that's not very enlightened, that you're kind of primitive. Say what you're going to say. They call Jesus a drunk and a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners, but he wasn't a drunk. So they'll, the devil and his children will do any means possible to, to shake our confidence in the Bible. But if I can take the Bible away from you, I'll make you sad in your walk uh, with um, Christ. So this is a call in an experience of joy in the Lord, in the real world, in this life. And I, meant, I one time mentioned, and I lost a church member over this, it comes from Revelation chapter 2, um, dwelling where Satan dwells. Remember that? I know who you are. You live where Satan dwells. And I said, and I don't know whether I would say it today, but I said, we live where Satan dwells. And the person later said, you don't love America? <laughs> and I'm leaving. I love America. I'm 59 years old. If we were in a just war and Uncle Sam said, put your suit on and go fight, I would fight. I but we live where Satan dwells. What did Peter say? She who is in where greets you. Babylon. But here's the, here's, here's the larger truth that this is teaching us. We can rejoice in our salvation where Satan dwells. Look around. Does it not sometimes look like Sodom and Gomorrah, even in this dear country in which we live? Sure. Can we rejoice in the Lord? Can we rejoice in the experience of our salvation and the fellowship of the saints and the promise of everlasting life? Yes, we can. While we live in Babylon, can we not be happy? Will God not give us happiness in our earthly pilgrimage? Yes, he will. And we're experiencing that. So we have uh, um, the realm of happiness is in this life, the here and the now, of facing the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can be happy in the Lord. Look at the expressions of happiness in verse 2. Look how the psalmist describes the outward expressions of the inward hope and inward confidence and inward joy. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. In other words, their experience and belief in God and hope in God and their enjoyment in their salvation, freedom, captivity is so joy-producing, they're laughing it comes out, they're singing songs of praise. What's inside of them comes out of them. And this, the same is true when we are sad, when we, we have sad or low thoughts, and when our hearts, our affections are broken. That comes out of our mouth, does it not? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, what's inside of your heart is going to come out of your mouth. And so... The book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to weep, there's a time to go to the house of mourning, and then there's a time for feasting, and a time for joy, and a time for happiness. 
I've done 37 or 30, 38 as officiant uh, funerals. And I've, I've officiated at maybe, I don't know, eight, nine weddings. And my wife always tells me when I do the weddings, it's a wedding, John. It's a wedding. It's not a funeral. Because I go into my funeral mode, which is what I'm wired for. But not all of life is morning time. You can rejoice. And this is one of those things. And so we have the expressions of happiness is they're literally laughing and their tongues are filled with joyful um, sh shouting. Beloved, um, Martin Luther would say you can't prevent the crows or the, the evil birds from flying over your chimney uh, but you can, or your head or your hair, but you, can't, you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. And the notion is we can't prevent all of the filthy thoughts and everything out there but we can prevent them from finding a nest in our, in our head. So what we think about, this is why that Philippians, where God the Holy Spirit tells Paul, think on lovely things, think on beautiful things. Our society uh, is very, 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 very crass. It's very, it's, very, it's very crass. And there's enough in our society to make us sad. But this is one of the benefits of the Lord's Day. And this is why we should have daily worship with the Lord. When you feast on God's word, there is plenty in God's word to fill up your mind with things that would make you happy. Well, your body's breaking and it's probably not going to work and the country's going to go down in a handbasket. Maybe it will, but I'm going to read the Bible. And I'm on my way home. And Christ loves me and the Holy Spirit indwells me and the Father cares for me and I have brothers and sisters that love me. Well, there's this, there's that. You say what you want. Beloved, would you let someone dump garbage in your living room? No, you wouldn't. But then why turn on the something and, and will, willfully let people dump garbage in your mind? Garbage in, garbage out. Why am I so depressed? What are you listening to? What's filling your head? Garbage. That's why. That's why. Fill yourself up with the word of God. I, sometimes people say, well, they mock the campus crusade for Christ kids. God's one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I know, I know it doesn't bring in the law. I know all the other things. But beloved, as a Christian, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's this. You are a slave and you're free. Is this something that we should say to ourselves regularly? Yeah, I think that might be a good idea. We'd probably be happier for it. And so fill up your mind with joyful thoughts and you're going to have joyful words. And I would even say it will come out on your face. It will come out on your countenance. It will come out in your carriage, how you walk, how you carry yourself. The people of God are rejoicing. The Bible says in Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is good medicine. I don't mean frivolous. I don't mean silly I don't, I don't even, well, the only, the only time I'm silly is with my grandsons, the little ones. Then I can be silly. Other than that, I don't think I have a silly bone in my body. But the Bible says a joyful heart is, is like good medicine. And these themes in, uh, provide the good medicine. The Bible says in Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. The arable will rejoice and blossom. It will blossom profusely. The majesty of our Lord will come to Carmel and Sharon. That's when Christ comes back. So even, even in the wilderness, in the howling wilderness, when we, it's one of the benefits of the Lord's Supper. Every time you do the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death until he what? Until he comes. Jesus is alive and well, and he's coming back. 
And he's going to come back and he's going to restore all of creation and we're going to live with him. That's this here. That's tr- this, this doesn't deny the suffering. And it, it, Jesus says, in this life you'll have much suffering. But then what does he say in John 16? But take what? Take cheer. Take courage. I overcame the world. Jesus says, my peace I gave to you. But he says, I came to give you joy. What's the chief end of man from your catechism? Come on, everybody. The chief end of man is glorify God. And what's the next phrase? And to enjoy. That's this. Joy, 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 joy. Isn't there a song, joy, joy, joy? I think there is. Um, There are many things in the Bible that are almost beyond my pay grade. There are things which seven years ago I think I could have written sermon series on because I thought I knew it. And now seven, eight years, ten years later, I know enough to know that I don't know it as much as I thought back then. Um, Theologians, the the really smart ones, talk about the faculties of the soul, that human beings have bodies and then we have souls. The soul is created with primarily three properties. Uh, The ability to think, the intellect, the ability to emote, affections, and um, in the will, volition. And so when we come to the idea of laughing with joy and happiness, it's an emotion, it's an affection. And um, this is not emotionalism. I haven't just flipped my wig and become a charismatic. Becoming a Presbyterian doesn't mean you just walk around looking like you ate a lemon. Um, We can rejoice, we can be happy in the Lord, properly so. And God is the one that created things which make us happy. And what makes us happy is he makes us happy. Now, admittedly, for the unbeliever, if you ask, what does the unbeliever, what makes him happy? The free enjoyment of his sin or her sin makes them happy. But for the believer, what's making the believer happy? Salvation in the Lord, the Lord, the Lord's people, the promise of God and the fulfillment of God's promise, the promise of heaven. You see the difference? People think, well, the Lord's day, what a drag. The unbeliever would find heaven, real heaven, hell for them. Why? God is there. They hate God. Christ is there. They hate Christ. Christians are there. They hate Christians. Why would they want to go there? It's all holy. And they're not. But for the believer. Is it George Whitfield that says one of the things he couldn't wait to, to go to heaven, is there'd be no more sin there, especially his. That's what it is. So... The, Lord find, the Lord's people finds the Lord in the Lord's things to be the source of our happiness. I mentioned earlier that sin produces sorrow and holiness produces happiness. When, when, when God created an Adam and Eve before they fell, I am sure they were consummately happy. Consummately happy. That's why heaven, when there's no more sin, we have the two natures as Christians, We have the old man, the fallen nature, and then we have the new man, the regenerated part, the spirit. In the Bible, in James chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, Romans chapter 7, says this, there's this war. So even for us as believers, we can't experience this pristine happiness in the Lord because we're not yet pristine. But when we go to be with the Lord, if we go to be with the Lord before he comes back, our body will rest in the grave our spirit will go perfected to be with the Lord God. And then on the last day, we'll be given a, a perfected body to be joined to our, our perfected soul. To, and, and the, our catechism says, to the full enjoyment of God, enjoyment of God forever. That's this. That's that no more sin, no more suffering. 
That's why sometimes heaven is put in the negative, because we know the negative experimentally much better than we know the other. I know what it is to be sorrowful. I know what it is to be sick. I know what it is to face um, the death of loved ones and even to hear that I'm going to die. I know those things. And so sometimes God, the Holy Spirit says, in heaven will be none of those things. I said to my, um, my father-in-law said, why don't you want to live to 150? I said, because I want to go to, uh, go to heaven. And of course, I knew I was opening a door. Have you ever been to heaven? <laughs> How do you know there is a heaven? No, I, I never have been to heaven, but I'm going to heaven. And you can mock all day long. You can't take my hope away. You can't take my joy away. You can't take my Jesus away. It's not a good I- idea to be a mocker. But that's the idea. We're going to go from this realm, which is a realm of sorrow, even with the happiness and the joy that we could experience, but with the promise of everlasting felicity or happiness. Now, so we're created for happiness. I think um, Spurgeon says Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. Although, I will say, one of the reasons maybe we're not seemingly the happiest, as, as a true believer, we have the Holy Spirit, we actually can discern the things which are really sorrowful. So I think both can be true in the life of a believer. We legitimately can experience sorrow for ourselves and for other people because we're reasoning rightly as spiritual creatures. And then also, if we reason rightly as spiritual creatures, we can also enjoy happiness. The unbeliever sometimes appears happier than we do. This is a Psalm 73, because they're not reasoning rightly. And um, Okay, so the Bible speaks about the life of the believer being one where we have the potential for a joy. Um, the occasion here, we see it says a song of ascents. And I think in the Greek Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, it's sometimes put LXX, the 70, because supposedly 70 translators translated the Greek Old Testament. It will call it, in the Greek, a song of steps. These particular psalms, and I think Psalm 120 to 134, have this title, a song of ascents. These were what was known as pilgrim psalms or pilgrim songs, there are three Old Testament um, feasts which all of the adult males were required to attend, and they would sing these. So this is a corporate worship song, and by which we're taught something else. Just, just generally, this was used for the corporate worship of God's people. Sometimes people think, "Well, I'm going to take a break from um, I'm going to take a break from church." Well, I, of course, I never recommend that. And you're going to say, "Of course, you're the pastor." You would say that, and I suppose maybe some of that's true, but. <laughs> But on these, along this line, when we forsake the gathering together, one with another in corporate worship, we rob ourselves of um, of of uh, fodder for joy. We're, let's say you have no fellowship with the saints. You're not hearing regularly from the Bible that God in Christ has saved you and He's conforming you into His image, and He's going to take you where He is. You don't hear that. What are you going to hear in the world? Nonsense upon nonsense upon nonsense upon nonsense. And then what's going to happen to your spirit? You're going to be depressed. And so it's almost we're cutting off our nose despite our face that I'm going to take a break because such and so and such and so. But God uses these very songs for corporate worship. And if you remember the, the pilgrim feasts, one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread surrounding the Passover. 
The other one was the Feast of uh, Harvest or Pentecost. It was a feast which commemorated God's provision for his people in the wilderness. And the last was the Feast of Tabernacles or in the land of my birth. They would call it in the Hebrew Sikot, uh, in gathering, uh, where God took care of his people and ultimately would bring them uh, together. All of these teach redemptive truths. This is why I'm saying this is the happiness of being set free in Christ. This is the happiness of salvation. There's a chapter in our confession, chapter 20, I think, on the liberties purchased to us by Jesus Christ. And it talks about what Christ has done for us, kind of thematically from this uh, psalm. We have been saved from the wrath of God, from the condemnation of God for the breach of his law. We've been saved from the dominion of the devil. We've been saved from vile affections. And we have been saved for God, to love him with a childlike love, to be his children, and to be with him forever and ever. Saved from and saved for. That's this. That's salvation. That's the happiness of salvation. I had a minister many years ago, a very insightful minister, I had failed in a business miserably and lost all of our money and life was very, very unhappy and my daughter was sick and we had no money and we couldn't afford doctors or insurance or anything and I was a grumbling, complaining, unhappy Christian. And I've said this before, but the minister looked at me after letting me complain for a good long time. He said, well, what? looks like Christ hasn't held up his bar- end of the bargain. Why don't you just walk away? Why don't you walk away? If life is so miserable with Jesus, I I can't walk away. That's a John 6. Where am I going to go? He has the words of eternal life. Eternal life. Beloved, sometimes the, the Puritans would say the devil can't stop you from going to heaven. Once you're in Christ, you're never not going to be in Christ. It's called the perseverance of the saints. But the devil in the flesh and the world can make you sad on the way to heaven. And we need God's word and we need God's spirit to counteract that so that we can go to heaven rejoicing. There are times to weep and there are times to rejoice. And the theme here is we've been saved from slavery. We don't know the the particular uh, slavery, captivity being spoken of here. There is the larger um, time of captivity and then there's the smaller time of captivity in the Old Testament for God's people. One is the obvious one, 430 years slaves of the Jews to Egypt. I don't think it's in reference to that. The other minor, I don't, (laughs) minor, we can say minor because we're not undergoing it, but it's the 70-year captivity of the Jews, uh, Judah specifically, uh, to to, uh, Babylon. So you have the major captivity, uh, 430 Egypt, then you have the minor captivity, 70 years to Babylon, and there are a couple of other other captivities. The Israel, the uh, uh, northern kingdom, was taken to Assyrian captivity. I want to say 722, 725. Uh, so Israel went one way, and then Judah in the 500s went, the southern kingdom uh, went to Babylon. And then in the time of the judges, there were kind of mini captivities where God would chastise his people by giving them a Gentile leader. And the notion is if you want to live like a Gentile, I'm going to give Gentiles to rule over you. And it's the principle of the judgment of God begins with the household of God first. It always makes me, when people, we, we, we gripe about our presidents, whoever the president is, and think this person is a scoundrel, whatever the person may be. And you may be right. But I tend to think if we have a scoundrel for a president, the general reason is we're scoundrels. 
God often gives us um, a leader that's just like us and says, you want to be a Gentile? You want to live like a pig? Here's your leader. Why did we get this person? Here you go. Now, I tend to think that this particular captivity in view is the people that have, because what we see here is this particular fellow and these people have experienced going off into captivity, the word of God promising them a time of captivity, and the word of, coming true, word of God coming true in their lives. And I, don't, I think that would be harder for me to understand the 430 years. Maybe, but this one is a little bit easier for me to understand in that, uh, in the Babylonian captivity, depending on when you were taken off, you could have been hearing the word of promise from Jeremiah chapter 25. You're going to, to, to Babylon, but you'll come back. You go as a bitsy, but you're coming back as an old man or an old woman. And the people are just laughing and rejoicing, not mocking laughing. And the idea is, I can't believe the word of God came true. Have you ever prayed for something? Like prayed for something. And God will answer it in some tremendous way. And you say, I I can't believe he answered that. I can't believe how good he is. We're, We're called to pray in faith. And God doesn't like when we pray doubting prayers. I sometimes say if God won't hear that doubting prayer. I'll never be heard. (laughs) I'll never be heard. I'm Timothy in the flesh. God hears the weak believer. He hears the strong believer. And sometimes his answer from slavery to freedom is so tremendous. We have this spontaneous joy. And I will say this. If you've never had, my dad was used, was a, he, had, he, he coined some pithy phrases. And one of them he used to say all the time is something about it getting, is having your ox gored or being gored by an ox. And the idea is something like this. If you're not the guy or the woman undergoing the pain, then the freedom from that thing won't, won't strike you as anything large. If I made you a slave, slave... And I set you free. Man, you know what the chains were like. You know what the, f- the misery was like. You know what the filth is like. And now you're free. That's this. Charles Spurgeon said there's two things that a man or a woman or a boy or a girl has to do for themselves. He has to do you believe in alone and personally and have to do your dying alone and personally. You have to do it. It's this experimental thing. These people knew what it was like to be a slave and they know what it's like to be free. We can, as, as moms and dads, we've been given our children. They're to be devoted to the Lord. I do believe in the covenant of grace as the administration of, of that covenant with our children, our grandchildren. I believe all of that, Genesis 17 through 7. We can't do our children's believing for them. We can't experience salvation for them. We can tell them about Christ. We can tell them about calling them to repent and believe. We can tell them about the wonders of salvation. But they have to experience it for themselves. So sometimes the mother and the father, they may be born again, or the son or the daughter may be born again, telling their mom or their dad, who is merely externally a, a Christian, but they've never experienced this. No joy in the Lord. 
Do you know what it's like to be in bondage? Do you know what it's like to be slavery to sin, but now you're free? These people did. These people did. So this is a call, in a way, do we know this experimentally? Do we know? Have you ever spoken to a Christian and said, do you know the goodness of being set free in Jesus? And they look at you and think, are you okay? Everything okay? You're not needing enough? Just some kind of weirdo mystic? This is not mysticism. You must be born again. Joy in the Lord. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Lots of Christians don't have any idea what it is to be set free from sin. They can talk about Calvinism. They can talk about theology. They can quote the Bible. They can talk about church attendance. This? Do you know this? And, and you'll know it if you know it. And so, again, it's, it's the experience of being set free from our sins and the promise of God coming true. And the reason we see the spontaneousness of the people, there's a place in uh, Bill Clinton, I remember, President Clinton, um, he had quoted one time from the book of Corinthians, um, he, he, that no eye has seen, um, it hasn't even entered into the mind of man the good things or the extent of the goodness that God has promised for those that love him. And I don't know why I remember that President Clinton quoted that, but I, I remember that. That's this. It has not even entered our minds how good it will be. The, the moment we breathe our last and we open our eyes up, it's the beatific vision. It's to, to, to be with um, Christ. Now, one of the things that we see about these joyful Christians is uh, they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. We are walking witnesses for Jesus Christ. If you are a professing Christian, uh, everyone is looking at you, not to make you stressed out. But as a professing Christian, everyone is looking at you. Christians are looking at you, but especially unbelievers are looking at you. So if you were a, a card-carrying unbeliever and you say, you know what, I, I didn't know Jesus, now I do know Jesus, I, I was in slavery, now I've been set free, and you say that to people, uh, the games are going to begin. People are going to watch you. Your mom's going to watch you. Your dad's going to watch you. Your sisters and brothers are going to watch you. The church, your, your coworkers are going to watch you, and they're going to listen. What do, you, what do you say? How do you say it? How do you speak about God? How do you speak about people? This is why we shouldn't cuss as believers. This is why we shouldn't use God's name as believers. This is why we shouldn't do lots of nonsensical things that believers do because we're witnesses. And the, un, the unbeliever is going to go, oh, oh. And so when we talk around, life is lousy, never going to make it, the unbeliever says what? You don't believe what you say you believe. You don't believe what you say you believe. Conversely, when you say, and again, not in, I know I have victory and I know victory is mine. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying be silly and put on, you know, f fake airs when you really want to just lie in the fetal position and cry. If that occurs, have a good cry in the fetal position. No one's around. Shut the door. When you're cried out, come out of your <laughs> room and uh, go about your life. I mean, there is a time to do that. But the point here is, when God's people rejoice in the Lord, the unbelievers are thinking, wow, they have something 
I don't. And beloved, you, you, we sometimes think, boy, the unbelievers are so much happier than Christians, and oh boy, and we envy the unbeliever. Really? Really? Are the unbelievers a whole lot happier than believers? Really? Would you exchange Jesus for their life? You ever see the shows where the guy wins like, you know, $600 million in the Powerball or something? What happens? He ends up divorcing his high school sweetheart that he married and had three kids and six grandkids and he built a business and he goes off with some floozy and he dies penniless. I mean, that's usually what happens. He's miserable. And when the believer says, my joy is in the Lord, that, that, that is an, a, an attractive platform for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we, we quote it all the time, 1 Peter chapter 3, when the unbeliever says to you, how do you rejoice? How do you rejoice when that thing just happened to you? Because I trust in Christ. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. He's with me even in the sorrow. He gives me joy even in the hard times. And he's promised me at the end of this a state of humiliation, I'm going to be with Jesus. That's how. That's how I have joy. That's this. That, 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 that's, that's that. Sowing in tears, and then reaping with, with what, is it, what is Isaiah 35? With everlasting joy on our heads. Beloved, that's you. That's me. Time of sorrow, true enough. Time of struggling, true enough. We can have joy in the Lord even now. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen? Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.